0: time for the Des Moines Register on Monday, November 27th. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is none other than Mary Frances herself. So we're glad to have you on the on the air today, Mary Frances, for the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer Voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. According to AccuWeather across the state, we should see plenty of sunshine today. Cold to the east and in the south. Winds west, 8 to 16 miles per hour, Tuesday. Partly sunny. Winds south southwest, 6 to 12 miles per hour. And the forecast through the middle of the week. For today and tonight, a high of 34 and a low of 15. Plenty of sunshine on Monday. Winds west 8 to 16 miles per hour, mainly clear and cold on Monday night. Winds northwest 6 to 12 miles per hour. On Tuesday, a high of 41 and a low of 27, with partly sunny skies. On Wednesday, it should be mostly sunny with a high of 50 and a low of 29. And on Thursday, we'll have times of clouds and sun with a high of 49 and a low of 29. Looking at precipitation recently, in the 24 hours through 4 p.m. on Saturday, we had a trace of Uh, Month to date has been 0.07, that's seven one hundredths of an inch, against a normal of 1.62 inches Uh, year to date has been 23.20 inches against a normal of 34.68 inches. And last year at this time, we'd had 28.57 inches of precipitation. Sunrise today was at 7.17 a.m., sunset tonight, 4.47 p.m., moonrise today, 4.47 p.m., and moonset today at 7.46 a.m. Now turning to the front page of the Des Moines Register, there's a photo display here of lighting going up in the holiday season. This is a but these are photographs from the tree lighting ceremony on Tuesday at the Miracle on 86th Street holiday lights display in Charles Gabus Memorial Tree Park in Urbandale. They have more than 50,000 lights and the park has a custom built train, ornamental displays, an ice skating rink and holiday themed events through January 8th of 2024. There's a large large photograph that shows people walking through a lighted uh, archway That looks quite festive. And then there's a photograph, a smaller photograph, of Brad Floden and his grandson, Rocky Rahm, also enjoying the festivities. The headlines on the register read, Ballistics results are not infallible, and border walls deemed to be unclimbable are not stopping determined migrants. So here with the first story is Mary Frances.
1: Hello. Um, Just so our readers are aware, or our listeners are aware, In the Des Moines Register A section today, there's exactly one local story, in addition to the photographs of the uh, tree lighting at Gabus Park. So we're going to go with the one local story, and then we'll hop on over to Metro, because what we're trying to do is give you local first always. So this front page story says, Ballistic results are not infallible. Some findings wrong, ISU researchers say. And this is from William Morris of the Des Moines Register. In any trial involving a shooting, there's a good chance that sooner or later the jury will hear testimony from a forensic ballistics examiner. Ballistics testing, and in particular, the study of microscopic scratches or tool marks left on a spent cartridge as it is fired and ejected from a gun, is among the most common forms of forensic evidence. Experts routinely take the stand to testify whether casings, Found at a crime scene, match casings test-fired from a gun linked to a suspect. Trained examiners are very good at what they do. Amazingly near perfect, in the words of Gary Wells, an ISU professor who recently co-authored a major study to validate forensic techniques. Nonetheless, in a new paper in the Journey of Applied Research in Memory and Cognition, Wells and fellow ISU professor Andrew Smith are blowing the whistle on forensic examiners who say they systematically, or I'm sorry, systemic, systemically report non-match results as quote inconclusive, in effect denying what could be critical evidence for criminal defendants. This is a terrible injustice to innocent people who are counting on expert examiners to issue a report showing that their gun was not involved but instead are left defenseless by a report that says the result was inconclusive, Wells said in a news release about the paper, which was published in the journal in August. A leading ballistics expert, asked by the Register to comment on the findings, argued the paper disregards the challenges of distinguishing bad samples from marks left by different guns. But in an interview, Wells and Smith said that between personal bias, lab policies, and what they believe, is a flawed response scale used by examiners. The system makes it easy for exculpatory results to instead be reported as inconclusive, meaning prosecutors likely won't call the examiner as a witness or even share the evidence with the defense. Quote, In fact, what defense attorneys should be doing, which they didn't know, is always put the guy who reaches an inconclusive decision on the stand, right? Well said and find out, well, no, it didn't match, unquote. The study underlying Wells and Smith's new paper was conducted with 228 trained firearms examiners from around the country, asking them to evaluate pairs of cartridge casings fired from the same gun on a five-point scale used by the Association of Firearm and Tool Mark Examiners. The results were published in May. When the examiners reported two casings were conclusively from the same source, they were nearly always right, with only five false positives out of 856 results. Likewise, when the examiners conclusively declared two casings had been fired by different guns, they were correct 572 times and wrong exactly once. But examiners using the scale also can declare their results inconclusive, and the results in those cases were decidedly unequal. The study found that examiners were six times more likely to call two cartridges fired from different guns inconclusive than they were for the same source pairs. Ballistics examination is a century-old forensic discipline but has come under increased scrutiny from scientists and courts in recent years. While the most recent study found examiners were very accurate when reporting same source and different source findings, a 2020 study, also involving an ISU researcher, found a huge problem of reproducibility. Examiners asked to retest certain samples frequently contradicted their earlier findings, and retests by other examiners reached different conclusions even more often. The 20 20- that 2020 report in particular has gotten judicial attention. The Maryland Supreme Court in June cited it in a ruling greatly limiting when and how ballistics evidence can be introduced at trials. Smith and Wells are both psychologi- psychologists sorry, who specialize in memory and decision-making and set out to try to explain the discrepancy between the accuracy of examinations reaching positive conclusions and the inconsistency in inconclusive findings. Their hypothesis? Some examiners report inconclusive findings even when they detect a non-match. And, quote, examiner response bias causes discrepancy between examiners' internal beliefs and external reports, unquote. Using mathematical decision-making models, the two wrote in their new paper, It's clear some examiners are reporting inconclusive results even when they clearly know the right answer. Quote, There was virtually no uncertainty in the minds of examiners as to whether they were examining an actual match or an actual non-match for one of the gun types tested the two right. Quote, Consistent with our responses, or excuse me, Consistent with our response bias hypothesis, There is a clear discrepancy between forensic examiners' internal knowledge that they are examining an actual non-match and their external report of inconclusive, unquote. (coughs) Excuse me. How large is that discrepancy? For one gun type, the authors found, the results were reported as inconclusive on 32% of non-matches, but less than 1% of matches. Even that might understate the issue, Smith said, since the Examiners knew they were taking part in a validation study and might have shown more care than usual. Wells and Smith point to several possible explanations, starting with a pro-prosecution bias by examiners who are usually retained by prosecutors or work for law enforcement agencies themselves. There are other reasons examiners might be reluctant to conclusively exclude a given gun from being a match. A gun might leave inconsistent marks if its internal components are dirty or have been replaced. In fact, some crime labs, as a matter of policy, prohibit casing examiners from definitively excluding a gun from being a match based on individual tool marks. Smith suspects some of the 15 to 20 percent of examiners who consistently reported inconclusive results on non-matches in the study were following their training and employers policy to do so. Quote, it's sort of the people who weren't thoughtful enough, he said. That's what allowed us to kind of catch them in the act of rendering inconclusives despite being able to know that they're looking at an actual mismatch. Unquote. Officials at the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations Criminalistics Laboratory, the primary ballistics matching lab in the state, did not respond to questions about the ISU paper, including whether the DCI lab has a policy restricting examiners from reporting non match results. Asked about the paper, a veteran ballistics expert said he, quote, outright rejects, unquote, the claim that there is a systemic problem of misreporting exclusions as inconclusives and said the paper's authors understate the difficulty of distinguishing normal expected variations in marks left by a single gun from those of two different weapons. Quote, To come to the final conclusion of an exclusion based on individual characteristics is one of the hardest things we do because there are many normal, expected results for variations at this level of tool marks, said Michael Hag, that's HAAG, who is a retired police forensics examiner, ballistics, textbook author, and board officer with the Association of Firearm and Toolmark Examiners. He said he was speaking on his own behalf and not on any organizations. Examiners can be asked to examine evidence that has spent time outside exposed to the elements, be damaged or deformed, be imprinted on different types of cartridge metal, or otherwise have factors that make it hard to determine whether differences between the samples are due to environmental factors or just different guns, Hag said. None of those factors were part of the May 2023 validation study, however. Hag said the blanket policies at some labs restricting examiners from reporting exclusion results are, quote, an extreme approach, unquote, to avoiding false negatives, but that examiners need to be open to the possibility that a gun has been altered in ways that would produce non-matching results. Quote, the simple determination of source should always be described in such a way to account for altercation, he said. I'm sorry, alteration. Quote, it is for this reason that inconclusive should be employed when the examiner cannot be certain that alteration or lack of reproduci- reproducibility is in play in the examination. <coughs> Pardon me. One suggestion Wells and Smith have to address the problem goes back to the AFTME response scale used by examiners. On that scale, a match is described as a same source conclusion, and an elimination is termed a different source conclusion. Smith thinks that language makes examiners too reluctant to describe non-matching samples as a different source, since the same gun could theoretically be contaminated or altered to produce different marks. A better scale, he said, would simply ask, does it match or not? And leave it to the attorneys to make the case for what that means. Quote, these individuals are trained in a perceptual task. Instead of asking if two casings come from the same gun, what they should be asked instead is, do these match or not? And to what extent do these match or mismatch? Which is a completely perceptual question, Smith said. And the quote continues, and then a prosecutor could always follow up if they said it's a mismatch by asking subsequent questions like, is there evidence of alteration? Is there evidence of degradation? Hag, the veteran examiner, said he's open to different terminology, but he doesn't think there's a problem asking examiners to form opinions on whether two bullets were fired by one gun. Quote, the claim that a perceptual question is being asked of the scientist is odd to me, he said. All questions are perceived. All data is perceived. Interpretation in all forms and in all sciences is directly connected to perception. While Hag doesn't believe examiners themselves have a systemic problem, he has his own ideas to improve the profession from his decades of experience. "'Examiners should have as much information as possible "'about the crime scene and the circumstances of a shooting,' he said, "'but they should work separately from the culture "'and administrative system of law enforcement.'" Many examiners, examiners he said, now think labs should be separated from police agencies and run as independent investigative services available to work for both prosecution and defense. Quote, "'I am of the strong belief that the answer to some of the points being raised by Wells and Smith are actually making sure that the scientist has all the relevant information, but is trained to be skeptical of it, he said. The quote continues, there's actually more risk, in my opinion, of an investigative direction being missed because a well-trained, interested forensic scientist did not even know that a question existed because information was never conveyed, unquote. Whether through changes in how examiners do their work or better education for judges and attorneys, Well said he hopes the new paper shines a light on an issue that calls into question the integrity of criminal prosecutions. Quote There's good reason to believe that there may very well be innocent people who've been convicted who would not know, who would not rather have been convicted had the jury known that the casings from the crime scene did not match the suspect's gun, but instead, at most, they've heard inconclusive, or they heard nothing, he said.
0: And that's it for the local stories in the front page section. We're going to turn down to Metro and Iowa. And the first story here, Ramaswamy joins in the turkey trot. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy tried his hand at a different kind of race on Thanksgiving Day, joining hundreds of runners for the 2023 Des Moines Turkey Trot. Ramaswamy ran the 5K while pushing his son in a stroller and said afterward he experienced a sense of patriotism in the crowd, even exchanging a fist bump with a runner holding an American flag. I would say it was an uplifting day, Ramaswamy said after the race. We're meeting people, have no idea whether they're Republican or Democrat, but they're unified with their families. Multiple grandparents to grandchildren to parents are doing this together, and so that's something that gave me a sense of optimism, he said. Ramaswamy says he still has a shot in the Iowa caucuses, despite the recent endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa Evangelical Leader Bob Vander Plaats for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I think it's entirely unsurprising. I mean, everybody from the start of this race saw those endorsements coming, Ramaswamy said. That didn't surprise anybody. But what I'm seeing on the ground is that this is going to be decided by the people. This is going to be bottom-up, he said. Ramaswamy, who has held roughly 22 events across Iowa in the past week alone, said most of the attendees at his events have never even been to a caucus before. I think we're poised to deliver a major surprise, and I think that's going to be great to propel us to the rest of the race, Ramaswamy said. Ramaswamy said he had not planned to run a 5K as part of the campaign, but before hitting the trail, he regularly ran. I've always believed that physical fitness is a good ticket to mental health fitness, Ramaswamy said. I want to set a good example for this country, and that's what we're doing, he added. After the race, Ramaswamy said he planned to door knock and hand out pumpkin pies to supporters before going home for his Thanksgiving meal. I think we'll surprise some people with knocking some doors and we have some pumpkin pies ready for them just to say thank you for the people who are putting in such hard work, not just for this campaign, but it's because they care about this country, Ramaswamy said. If I can take one day today to say thank you to those who are doing their part, that's what we're going to do for the next phase of the day, he added.
1: And from Metro in Iowa, district regrets mistaken quote. Nazis' words shared in announcements. This is from Samantha Hernandez of the Register. Indianola Community School District has apologized after mistakenly using a quote by Heinrich Himmler, a high ranking Nazi considered to be part of the architect, or considered to be the architect of the Holocaust, as part of its morning announcements. The quote, My Honor is My Loyalty, attributed to Heinrich, was the November 20th respect quote of the day, according to KCCI. The quote was shared over the middle school's public address system and in an email to families. The phrase, Loyalty is My Honor, was used in Nazi Germany by the SS to show their loyalty to Adolf Hitler, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, aims to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. District officials shared the apology letter with the Des Moines Register, but did not respond to emails or phone calls seeking additional information. The letter included an apology to district families for the mistake, Iowa Public Radio reported Monday. Quote, this morning, November 20, an administrative staff member accidentally posted a respect quote of the day before checking the source of the quote, said Indianola Superintendent Ted Eynes in the email. This quote continues, the staff member did not realize that the quote was from a highly inappropriate source. Innes wrote that officials plan to implement a new process for double-checking the quotes going forward. He did not give details on what that change would include. Experts stress school officials need to remember that words can influence people. Quote, taking a step back, what are you trying to communicate? Said Gerard Bernstein of the Jewish Federation of Greater Des Moines. He's the executive director in an interview with the Register. Quote, maybe it is a powerful tool to help educate, but because you're going to go down that route, You know what you you are doing because those words have power, unquote. Bernstein recommends officials do a Google search before using any quotes in the future. The Indianola quote incident comes just weeks after the U.S. Department of Education released a Dear Colleague letter to remind officials of their, quote, federal legal obligations to ensure non-discriminatory environments "...for all students amid an increase in anti-Semitic incidents and threats to Jewish, Israeli, Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian students on college campuses and in P-12 schools." The increase in anti-Semitic incidents is due to the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Bernstein said. Indianola is not alone in quotes attributed to Nazis being used in schools. In May of 2019, a Green Bay area public school's high school senior in Green Bay, Wisconsin, used, quote, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed, unquote. That was Adolf Hitler, from Adolf Hitler. He used that quote as his yearbook quote. The quote is a paraphrase of a statement by Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels. At the time, the district announced it would discontinue the practice of allowing senior quotes in yearbooks. In February of 2021, Westside Community School District officials in Omaha apologized after a staff member displayed the quote, The man who has no sense of history is like a man with no ears or eyes, and that quote's attributed to Hitler, and he used it in an 8th grade hallway. WOWT reported at the time. Bernstein hopes the use of the Himmler quote was an honest mistake because the incident could have, have, could have an impact on the school's overall climate. Quote, the Nazi regime was an enemy of the United States, he said. What would you do if you Googled the quote and turned it turned out to be from Robert Lee? Do you think that would be appropriate? No. If you're trying to communicate an idea, find a better way and find a better source.
0: This cookbook author, who is 89, lives a restaurant dream. Diane Roop, who is 89, is a memory care patient at Eden Crest Beaverdale. She took a bite down memory lane with friends and family members as part of the Senior Living Facility's Dare to Dream program. Edencrest's team surprised Roop with a three-course meal with recipes from her own cookbook at Curban Cuisine, a restaurant in Beaverdale, on Wednesday. Roop, who now is showing signs of dementia, is an award-winning cookbook author, having written The Blue Ribbon Country Cookbook and Blue Ribbon Country Canning, Traditional and New Favorites. She also attempted to open a restaurant many years ago in New York City, but quickly ran out of funds, according to Susan Babcock, Community Relations Coordinator for Edencrest at Beaverdale. Once staff learned about her past, they found out a way for Roop to relive some of those memories through its Dare to Dream program, which aims to make reality Edencrest residents' hopes and aspirations. I'm going to read that sentence again because I read it rather awkwardly. Let me see if I can make it make more sense. Once staff learned about her past, they found out a way for Roop to relive some of those memories through its Dare to Dream program. That program aims to make a reality out of Eden residents' hopes and aspirations. What the Dare to Dream program enables is that every team member not only gets to know the residents on a healthcare level, but on a personal level, Babcock said. That means learning about their past, learning about their dreams, and learning about what they used to do, she said. Dee Staples, Roop's sister in law, said Roop grew up in Des Moines and attended Roosevelt High School. Roop went on to attend Northwestern University. After university, Roop got married and moved to Arkansas and worked as a schoolteacher. Roop eventually moved back to Des Moines and volunteered while she worked with her father at the Polk County Federal Savings and Loan Association. Roop later moved to Washington, D.C. to help author a book on volunteering before she found herself in New York as the Vice President for Public Affairs for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Greater New York. Roop was aspiring to open a restaurant called Diane's featuring Iowa or Midwest cooking rather than New York-style cooking, but it got away from her, Staples said. She came back home to take care of her mother, who had had a stroke and did some gardening and all that kind of stuff, and thought, well, I'm going to write a cookbook. So she started writing a cookbook, added Staples. Roop said after looking into the details of running a restaurant, she decided that it was something she would not be able to do. I got real practical real fast, Roop said. Running a restaurant, I learned, is not easy, and there are many failures. You have to have a lot of capital to start out, she said. Roop said even though the food in New York was fancy, nothing could top Midwest cooking. I was eating out a lot, and I found the food to be wonderful. So that's how New York worked its way into my tastes and my eating and made it a little fancier, Roop said. But you can't beat good old Midwest cooking, she added. Staples said it took Roop roughly 10 years to finish her book. I was thrilled to see that Edencrest would do this for Diane, Staples said. I go to see her often, but since my husband passed away, I couldn't care for her any longer, so we put her in there. But she loves it. She loves the people. She loves the food. She's just as happy as a lark. She did very well today. She's been remembering things. It was great, said Staples. Babcock said the plan was to turn the restaurant into Diane's for a day. Curban Cuisine served Wisconsin Beer Cheese Soup, Field of Dreams Salad, Rosemary Chicken Breast with Raspberry Sauce, and Harvest Moon Cake. Babcock said with each bite she could see Roop actively recalling good memories. The food was wonderful, Babcock said. My pay- favorite part was to listen to Roop and her sister-in-law talk about the recipes and to hear the history of where they came from, to hear Diane reflect back and have those memories of each and every one of those recipes, and to know she was recalling with each bite. Babcock said the success to Edencrest program is in its team's ability to find moments of joy for the residents. We have to realize no matter where they are in that dementia journey, they are still moments we can find. And that just might be, you know, a few during the day, Babcock said. That might be finding times where it's music or prayer. With Diane, it's cooking right now, said Babcock.
1: And another story from the Metro and Iowa section TikTok falls in love with seniors dancing in Waukee. They go viral with dances to rap songs. And this is from Jay Stahl of The Register. In the Des Moines metro, a troop of senior living residents are turning their golden years into TikTok gold. Seniors from Independence Village, Waukee, first went viral in 2022 with dances to rap songs and fun takes led by Iowa native Sarah Eskerich, who used her first postgraduate job to put a next-generation spin on senior living. Together, she and her residents have shown that having fun can happen at any age, and the internet has taken notice. They've received millions of TikTok likes and thousands of admirers by showcasing Iowa to the internet. Now, the group's shared TikTok stardom has led to a snazzy commercial spot with the social media company. After graduating from Iowa in 2020, Sarah started working at Independence Village Waukee, a senior living facility in a chain of Midwestern communities. As the facility's life enrichment director, she is tasked with finding unique ways to engage the residents and enhance their quality of life. Activities include sip and paint days featuring cocktails and art creations, as well as cardio classes and craft parties. But one idea she had was different from the rest, making humorous TikTok videos. At first, the residents were apprehensive, about joining her in her take on Gen Z social media trends. Quote, After the first couple of videos went viral and their families were reaching out to them like, oh my gosh, that's so cool and fun. They are so easy to convince to do TikTok now, she says. In July 2022, the senior living facility members went viral on TikTok in a skit starring resident Barb McAnally. In the video, McAnally was handed some sunglasses, and then she danced with other residents to the song No Hands, the 2010 song by Atlanta rapper Waka Flocka Flame, featuring Roscoe Dash and Whale. That video received more than 3 million likes and nearly 18 million views. The viral moments did not stop there. Quote, they were amazed that I had the guts to do that, McAnally said of her family's reactions. Eskerich enjoys watching her residents become viral sensations. Quote, It's just really fun to interact with the younger generation with them, and kind of like when worlds collide, they get to experience that too, she said. This fall, a team from TikTok reached out about their multi-generational story. They filmed a 30-second spot of the residents and Eskerich. The residents are true TikTok stars, Eskerich said. The ad has started airing during commercial breaks around central Iowa. An April 2022 video captioned, Always up to no good around here, captured the senior living community members pulling April Fool's Day pranks on staff members at the facility. The video received nearly 430,000 likes and 2.6 million views. As the Independence Village Waukee account ages, its success has spread the company's other locations, from Ankeny and nearby Pella to Aurora, Ohio, and Plymouth, Michigan. Quote, It started out that we had our own separate accounts, but the company ended up combining the accounts with the one that Sarah created for Joaquin. When Sarah was set to marry her husband, Sam, this summer, she hosted a bachelorette party for the seniors to the tune of Man, I Feel Like a Woman by country legend Shania Twain. The video, which features residents and staff in sashes, hip-bumping to the song, received 83,000 views and 8,000 likes. The account has given a new lease on life to mes- many of the residents. When Dale Buttolf met up with some of his nieces, they asked about his newfound TikTok fame. My nieces go, Oh my gosh, da- Uncle Dale's on TikTok, he said. He originally lived in Winterset, moving to the facility with his wife, Vicky. The senior living facility was a convenient option for him as his own health declined. Joining Eskerich's extra activities was an added plus for friendship and fun, amid the stress that aging has caused for other residents too. Jane Tigaman, who hails from Redfield about 40 minutes outside Des Moines, is recognized by folks in the region. Quote, it's my tradition to go every Saturday morning with my family out to the Legion breakfast in Redfield, And so when I'm out there, there's all kinds of people who come up and say, I saw you, you were in a TikTok video, she said. The Independence Village Waukee residents are still rehearsing, and now they're TV stars, too. Well, I'll have to catch them there.
0: And we'll wrap up the Metro and Iowa section with this story. Company pulls Illinois CO2 pipeline application, plans to refile. Wolf Carbon Solutions moved to withdraw its carbon dioxide pipeline permit application in Illinois on Monday to address concerns identified by state regulators. This story, by the way, is from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. This voluntary action does not impact our commitment to the project and its stakeholders or the ongoing regulatory process, including with the Iowa Utilities Board and the Army Corps of Engineers, said Dean Ferguson, the company president. Ferguson said Wolf will apply again early next year with the Illinois Commerce Commission for permission to build its pipeline system. About 90 miles of the pipeline in eastern Iowa would connect to two ethanol plants to transport their captured carbon dioxide to Illinois for underground sequestration. WOLF made its application for a Certificate of Authority to construct and operate its pipeline in Illinois in June of 2023. In October, a commission engineer recommended that the application be denied for a number of reasons, including these. First, it's unclear whether all potentially affected landowners were notified of the proposal. Second, agreements with the ethanol plants had not been finalized and Wolf had not secured a sequestration facility. Third, Wolf had not made required applications to federal regulators. And finally, Wolf did not provide an emergency response plan in case of a pipeline rupture. The engineer also said Wolf's proposal appears to be at odds with the intent of state law that governs carbon dioxide pipelines. Although I am not an attorney, in my opinion, Wolf's proposed pipeline does not match the legislative proposed—I'm sorry—the legislative purpose of the CO2 Act, which sought to promote and use Illinois coal. The engineer said in written testimony. Another engineer for the Illinois Commission had similar concerns about a pipeline system proposed by Navigator CO2, which later abandoned its multi-state proposal, which included Iowa. Wolf said in its motion to withdraw its application that it believes the application is sufficient, but that through a new application, it can, quote, address and moot many, if not all, of the concerns expressed. That's the end of the quote from their withdrawal application. Wolf began its hazardous liquid pipeline permit process in Iowa in June of 2022. It does not have as yet a defined timeline for completion.
1: And going back to the front page of the Des Moines Register, border walls deemed to be unclimbable are not stopping determined migrants. And it shows a a, a photograph of a border search trauma and rescue unit simulating a rescue of an individual who had fallen off a border wall in El Paso. This is Dateline El Paso. This is from USA Today. It wasn't until... Alma Zavala was at the top of the 30-foot steel border fence that she realized how far she had to fall. I hugged the wall, she said. My hands were bleeding from the rough edges. The guide was screaming, Let go, let go. I dropped, and I felt my bones break. Zavala, a young mother from Mexico, lay on a bed at an El Paso shelter, her right leg fastened with an external fixator-like scaffolding. scaffolding rather. In her room were four other migrants who also suffered terrifying falls from a barrier nearly three stories tall. Emerging public health data affirms what Border County Hospital trauma surgeons have suspected since the U.S. government began raising the height of the southwest border wall to slow migration. The 30-foot fence causes more injuries and is far deadlier than any barrier before it. Physicians say the falls and fatalities are a public health crisis for border communities at a time when the Biden administration and the state of Texas are investing in new border fencing amid record apprehensions of migrants. In 2023, county hospitals in El Paso and San Diego have received an average of one patient per day with trauma related to a border wall fall. The injuries range from complex lower extremity breaks that include a shattered ankle, foot and leg bone injuries, to life-altering spinal and head injuries. Border Wall Falls carry, quote, a mortality rate that is higher than COVID in the general population, said Dr. Susan McLean, a surgical ICU medical director at University Medical Center in El Paso. Her quote continues, and it's something that's happening all up and down the border. When the Department of Homeland Security began construction of a 30-foot fence in Southern California in 2019, then-President Donald Trump described the barrier as impassable. This wall cannot be climbed, he said during a tour. Board officials are rarely so starry-eyed. U.S. Customs and Border Protection prefers to use the language border barrier system two roadways, elements that the Border Patrol agents say slow but do not stop migrants. Vicki Galbeka, Associate Director of U.S. Immigration and Border Policy for Human Rights Watch, argues that the lethality of the wall is by design. Quote, The rationale is that at 30 feet, your body naturally experiences vertigo and it makes it easier to fall off the wall, she said. It's almost seems intentional that they built it that high there is no comprehensive count of border wall fall related injuries says Dr. J. Doucette Chief of Trauma at the University of California San Diego Health Medical Center but trauma surgeons have been collecting data independently to better understand a public health problem they say trumps politics From 2000 to 2019, when construction began on the 30-foot fence in California, El Paso's University Medical Center recorded a single death from a border wall fall, McLean said. Last year at UMC alone, nine patients died and 326 were treated for injuries. Quote, it's a preventable problem with serious consequences, she said. McLean and emergency room doctors have developed some best practices, she said, including regularly ordering CT scans, as migrants often have unrecognized spinal injuries. Many migrants arrive at the border after arduous journeys. They complicate healing, Doucette said. Quote, their rate of infection is higher and their immunity is poor, he said. Their stay at the hospital much longer. Surgeries are more difficult. Their long-term healing is in doubt. They don't come back for clinical appointments, they don't get rehab, and often they have to take out their own staples, unquote. All this means local residents are waiting longer for care as well, he said. Patients with spinal fractures are waiting up to five days for surgery now instead of 2.5 days before 2019. There are not enough orthopedic surgeons at the hospital to meet this increased need. The human and financial costs keep rising, Doucette said. October was the worst month we've seen, 70 major trauma victims, he said, more than two a day. But more fencing is coming. The Biden administration in October announced that it would waive more than two dozen environmental protection laws to construct 20 miles of new border fencing in South Texas, breaking a presidential campaign promise. The proposed fencing has been described as shorter but the Department of Homeland Security is already replacing an 18-foot fence, fence rather, with a 30-foot version near San Diego. DHS did not immediately respond to USDA's, or excuse me, U.S. Today's request for comment regarding whether the agency takes into account public health outcomes when designing barriers. In a statement earlier this year on the increase in migrant deaths at the border, customs and border protection said crossing the border illegally is inherently dangerous the us or excuse me the texas house last week approved a 1.54 billion dollar proposal to fund additional miles of border fencing quote texas will continue to utilize every tool and strategy to deter and repel illegal crossings between ports of entry this President Biden's dangerous open-border policies encourage migrants, unquote, Abbott spokesman Andrew Mahalaris said in an emailed response to questions on migrant deaths. The women at the shelter climbed the 30-foot fence in the same way. They used makeshift rope ladders of braided cord and plastic pipe. They said they didn't realize that they would be forced to climb the wall or that it was so high or that there wouldn't be a way down on the U.S. side. Once there, in the hands of dangerous traffickers, there was no turning back. They do not treat you like a queen, she said. You have to climb. She thought about her toddler son, his delicate health, and the money she needed to pay for his frequent medical care. She let go and landed face down, her foot twisting unnaturally. At first she felt only cold, not pain, and began crawling north. Zavala was lucky, she said. The men in her group stayed with her in the desert until Border Patrol agents found them and put her in an ambulance. Now the pain shoots to her hip, she said. She's awaiting a second surgery, and she could spend weeks recovering. Still, even with injuries and possible death on the other side, quote, the wall is definitely not a deterrent, said El Paso immigrant advocate Crystal Sandoval. She has seen hundreds of migrants and refugees face even the most dangerous obstacles, no matter the consequence. Quote, if you are fighting for your life, if you are fighting not to starve to death for the future of your children and your family, I don't think a wall or anything is going to stop you, she said. It's like saying you are going to forget hope.
0: In this story...
1: Headlined, U.S.
0: retailers prepare for a surge in online shopping. This is from the Sarasota Herald Tribune, which is part of the USA Today Network and is datelined Sarasota, Florida. Black Friday is a storied spo- sport of early risings and a rush toward the best deals. But for those not inclined to brave the crowds before sunrise, the following Monday offers an appealing alternative. This year's Cyber Monday, which highlights holiday deals from online retailers, will offer all the door-busting deals of a Black Friday sale from the comfort of your computer. And if trends prove consistent, the spending could smash records. Here's everything you need to know about the Internet's biggest shopping day. The National Retail Federation coined the term Cyber Monday in 2005 for the day when online retailers began to offer sizable deals and low prices on popular items. It falls on the Monday after Thanksgiving, pairing with Black Friday to bookend the biggest shopping weekend of the year. With a surge in online shopping, Cyber Monday has been increasing popularity. Last year, Americans spent a record $11.3 billion. This year, 39% of consumers reported they would shop on Cyber Monday, according to a National Retail Federation survey. As retailers stretch holiday shopping deals across the week of Thanksgiving, and sometimes the entire months of November and December, Cyber Monday as a single event is not as important as it once was. Rather, the holiday season, on the whole, sees a spending spike, with this year's projection to reach up to more than $966 billion spent by U.S. consumers. Retailers have introduced deals earlier and earlier, as consumers have increasingly reported a preference for starting their holiday shopping earlier. This year, 43% of consumers said they plan to start the search before November. Cyber Monday officially starts on November 27, but you likely will not have to wait until the big day to bag those deals. Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals largely overlap, and as e-commerce becomes the preferred shopping method for many consumers, retailers have begun to include their online stores in their Black Friday promotions. Major retailers like Target, Walmart, and Amazon have already posted their best deals online.
1: Insurer cites error in denying lung transplant. This is from the USA Today. A large health insurance company said it made an error when it denied coverage this week to a forty seven year old woman as she prepared to undergo a double lung transplant to treat her lung cancer. The woman, Carol Taylor, was summoned to Vanderbilt University Medical Center Tuesday when the hospital found a donor match for a double lung transplant. As the transplant team prepared for her procedure, she was informed that the health insurance company, Cigna Healthcare, had denied the transplant. Instead of getting a pair of donor lungs, Taylor was sent home and deactivated from the transplant wait list. But following a public outcry on the social media site X and Taylor's own words describing the ordeal on Substack, Cigna Healthcare said that the insurer will now will cover the transplant Quote, there are a number of unique circumstances in this case, and we have moved swiftly to resolve our error so that Carol Taylor's transplant will be covered, Signa Healthcare said in a statement, emailed Wednesday to USA Today. Quote, we deeply regret the pain and stress this has caused Taylor and her loved ones, unquote. Vanderbilt Medical Center officials said she will once again be activated on the transplant list. The medical team will need to identify a pair of donor lungs before she's able to once again undergo a transplant procedure. Vanderbilt spokesman John Hauser told USA Today, Hauser said patients generally must have prior approval for insurance coverage to be listed on the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is a nonprofit which manages the nation's organ transplant system. Patients need to take anti-rejection medication and follow-up care after a transplant nearly all patients cannot afford those costs without insurance coverage. Insurance pre-approval is part of Vanderbilt's evaluation process, along with tests and a comprehensive medical evaluation, according to Hauser. On her Substack post, shared by the writer David Dark on Wednesday, Taylor said she was sent home Tuesday from Vanderbilt, quote, because my insurance company, Cigna Healthcare, has now denied my claim, which they had previously approved, unquote. Cigna has determined cancer was not an approved condition for lung transplant, and it decided not to cover it. Quote, our healthcare system is not simply broken, it is corrupt and anti-life, Taylor said in the Post. When a company has the power to step in moments before a life-saving surgery and refuse coverage despite the medical experts insisting that It is crucial, time-sensitive, and all other options have been carefully weighed. There's no logical explanation other than greed. Hauser said, Donor organs are matched with recipients based on factors such as body size, blood and tissue type, and other criteria. When there's a delay or denial in the transplant process for a recipient, the organ usually goes to the next candidate who is a match. Taylor said in her post, that she is the first lung cancer patient at Vanderbilt to receive approval for lung transplant. Her doctors have been in uh, close contact with a team at Northwestern University which completed lung transplants on two lung cancer patients since 2021. Taylor has non-small cell lung cancer. The Northwestern team completed lung transplants on patients whose conventional chemotherapy and other treatments failed, Doctors plan to track up to 75 patients as part of a study that is listed on clinicaltrials.gov, which is a federal website that tracks clinical trial results.
0: The demand for bigger cars is reportedly erasing gains on climate. This from the Associated Press. The negative impact on the climate from passenger vehicles, which is considerable, could have dropped by more than 30% over the past decade if not for the world's appetite for large cars, a new report from the Global Fuel Economy Initiative suggests. Sport Utility vehicle- Vehicles, or SUVs, now account for more than half of all new car sales across the globe. The Wrote the group said, and it is not alone. The International Energy Agency, using a narrower definition of SUV, estimates they make up nearly half. Over the years, these cars have gotten bigger and so has their cost to the climate, as carbon dioxide emissions are almost directly proportional to fuel use for gas-powered cars. The carbon that goes into the pump comes out the tailpipe. Transportation is responsible for around one-quarter of all the climate-warming gases that come from energy, and much of that is attributable to passenger transport, according to the International Energy Agency. But the negative environmental impact from SUVs could have been cut by more than one-third between 2010 and 2022 if people had just continued buying the same size cars, according to the initiative, which is a global partnership of cleaner vehicle groups. One fix for this could be electric vehicles. George Parrott, an avid runner at 79 who lives in West Sacramento, California, decided to switch to cleaner vehicles in 2004 when he bought a Toyota Prius Hybrid. Since then, he has owned several pure electric cars and currently owns both a Genesis GV60 electric SUV and a Tesla Model 3. This was all a combination of broad environmental concerns, he said. Parrott and his late partner also knew their region ranks high on the American Lung Association's polluted cities list. We were going to do anything and everything we could to minimize our air quality impact here in the Sacramento area, he said. Not all consumers think of the energy consumption and environmental benefits the same way, especially in the U.S., While electric vehicle sales accounted for 15% of the global car market last year, that was only 7.3% in the United States. Meanwhile, smaller vehicles, or sedans, have lost a lot of ground. (coughs) Excuse me. Meanwhile, smaller vehicles, or sedans, have lost a lot of ground in the U.S. market over the past decade. In 2012, sedans accounted for 50% of the U.S. auto retail space, with SUVs at just over 30% and trucks at 13.5%, according to car buying resource Edmonds. In 2022, the U.S. sedan shared dropped to 21 percent, while SUVs hit 54.5 percent and trucks grew to 20 percent. People don't want to be limited by their space in their car, said Eric Frizy, president of the Tamaroff Group of Dealerships in southeast Michigan. Everyone wants a seven-passenger vehicle, he said. Large SUVs such as the Chevrolet Tahoe, Toyota Sequoia, or Nissan Armada have highway gas mileages of 28, 24, and 19, respectively, but even the most efficient SUVs will be less efficient than sedans because SUVs weigh so much more. A sign of progress, however, is the compact SUVs such as the Toyota RAV4 and Honda CRV. Uh, CR- I don't know whether it's a CRV or CR5, maybe you know. It's a Roman numeral V, so maybe it's a V or maybe it's a 5. Anyway, the RAV4, the Toyota RAV4 and Honda CRV at 35 and 34 highway miles per gallon respectively are now leading the US SUV market, accounting for about 18% of new vehicle sales last year. More efforts by the U.S. Department of Transportation and Environmental Protection Agency and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are also underway to improve gas-powered vehicle fuel economy and tailpipe emissions. Some initiatives could include SUVs, a prospect that has the industry up in arms. Do you have a couple
1: of minutes you could give us here?
0: Okay, here's Mary Frances.
1: I'll, I'll go over to 50 states and see if we've got some small fill. Um, in Alabama, Mobile, state records show that a suspended Alabama priest recently married the 18-year-old woman he fled to Italy with this summer, and an archbishop said he expects the Vatican to pursue the man's official dismissal from the priesthood. Um, Juneau, Alaska, authorities Friday identified those missing or killed in a southeast Alaska landslide as five family members and their neighbor, a commercial fisherman who made a long-shot bid for the state's lone seat in the U.S. House last year. Arizona, Phoenix. Arizona state troopers say nobody was injured when a runaway bull was found wandering around a Phoenix freeway early Friday. Video footage from a traffic camera shows the dark, long-horned bull just mulling around the highway as troopers try to herd it from the safety of their vehicles. Omaha, Arkansas. I didn't know there was one. The trial for a former high school principal charged in the murder of his wife was canceled, says the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Redwood City, California. A Northern California man was found guilty of first-degree murder for beheading his girlfriend with a samurai sword on the city st- on a city street last year. And Colorado Springs, the owner of a defunct Colorado funeral home where 190 sets of decomposing human remains were found to have been returned to the state. Um, the owners are now going to face hundreds of felony charges, and we can't go to birthdays on that. In Connecticut, a Metro-North commuter cr- train struck and killed a person, who was crouching on the railroad tracks there.